Welcome to podcast number 180 of my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda, and today's date is September 27th, 2022. Our guest this week is Mark Cameron. Mark is a New York Times bestselling author of the Jericho Quinn thriller series, which debuted in 2011. Since then, he has written eight Quinn novels and four Arliss Cutter novels featuring a former deputy U.S. Marshal based in Alaska, including the most recent Cutter Bone Rattle and the Cold Snap from uh, August, April, excuse me, of 2022 from Kensington Books. Mark is the author of five Tom Clancy Jack Ryan novels of the Tom Clancy estate, including the most recent Shadow of the Dragon and the upcoming Chain of Command from G.P. Putnam's Sons Penguin Random House. A retired Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal, Mark spent nearly 30 years in law enforcement. He holds a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and is a certified law enforcement scuba diver and man-tracking instructor. The job of a Deputy U.S. Marshal is extremely varied. Mark's career focused primarily on dignitary protection and fugitive operation. As a member of the Royal Tactical Tra- Tracking Unit for the United States Marshals District of Alaska, Mark routinely tracked lost hikers, hunters, and fugitives in the vast Alaska bush. His assignments have taken him from Alaska to Manhattan, Canada to Mexico, and dozens of points in between. Originally from Texas, Mark is an avid outdoorsman, sailor, and adventure motorcyclist. He and his wife live in Alaska, where they raise their three children. It is my pleasure to bring Mark Cameron onto the show today. Welcome to my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Say, and how is it up there on the last frontier? It's wonderful. Breakup season, starting to feel like spring. The snow's melting and got a little river running in front of our street. <laughs> Alaska. You got to love it. Uh, uh, where the moose are nervous. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, joking. But anyway, uh, down here, as we record this on April 21st, uh, it's a, a nice sunny day. Um, spring is trying to get a little warmer down here. My daffodils aren't as angry with the wind. And uh, it's uh, actually shaping up to be a nice spring. So I'm pretty happy about it. Uh, had a chance to um, you know, hear about your stuff and and see what you wrote. And I said to myself, that'd be fantastic. And I got in touch with your publicist and they they said that sure you'd be available and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today um but you know, part of the interest here at my favorite detective stories is that um you have a background in law enforcement and you like to write and those two things should just occupy the rest of the conversation so <laughs> yes plenty plenty to talk about for sure mhm 
So go go ahead. Start t- talking me about, you know, how you got into your career and, and how writing was always a part of it. No, I, I, uh, I, I started writing, you know, I kind of like you, I, I started law enforcement very young, right? Went away to school and, um, we found out we were going to have a child. So I came back home and got a job. Fortunately, we had an opening got a job with the police department. And, um, I was barely, really barely old enough to buy my own bullets. And I was 21. Um, oh, I know and, the feeling. Yeah. So started off as a, a new dad and a new rookie and, and, uh, all that while. I mean, when I, when I met my wife, I, she knew I wanted to be a writer. We actually met in the theater and we're in plays together. And no um, kidding. Yeah. I told her that I was going to be a writer and a um, college prof- uh, theater professor and then sort of lured her in that way. Cause that's what she liked. And then right <laughs> before we got married, confessed that I really wanted to be a writer and a cop and didn't, uh, you know, theater was fine, all well and good, but not something for me to make a living. So she, Married me anyway, and then that first year of marriage, she bought me a uh, American body armor ballistic vest because the little police department I worked for didn't buy them for you at the time. In fact, hardly anybody did back then. No, no. And uh, so she bought me uh, the ballistic vest and a uh, Smith Krona electric typewriter. So this really, <laughs> really supported my. And I was making like six sixty seven an hour back then. So yeah, um, I don't know where she. You know, she scrimped and saved, and we ate fish sticks and whatever beans. But uh, she really supported that, and and you know, there's a lot of in it. Back, that was back in the day when you wrote, sent it off, waited for rejection letters, and then while that was happening, you were writing something else. And I had, you know, sent an awful lot of short stories and essays, and hadn't really tackled a novel yet at the time. But um, it's been about twenty years like that almost like 18 years of our marriage um just watching me get all excited about a book or a story and then just tragically crash whenever i got the self-addressed stamped envelope back with a this is not for us piece Mm. of paper so Mm. she was very very patient to let me continue to try and work uh you know learn the craft as i stumbled and it was it was a good uh Good rite of passage, I think. She's very supportive. That's a great way to to uh, frame the story, obviously. My listeners know that I was a cop so long ago that I carried a six-shooter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, my mother who bought me a second-chance vest. I don't know if you remember second yeah. chance. Yeah, uh, I do. We, we actually wore second chance when I first uh, joined the Marshal Service. Anyway, okay. That was one of the ones we used. A little bit more comfortable and... Uh, I didn't sweat as much in them, but, uh, <laughs> but no, I, yeah. uh, uh, it wasn't until later when I became a, um, an insurance fraud investigator that I got the Smith Corona and it was a company and the company paid for it. Oh, and, yeah. And then with the, uh, with the selecto tape. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember that. It's, uh, it's, it's funny. So I have a little, uh, well, I have several old manual typewriters or it's kind of a, you, you never say that you're collecting manual typewriters because if you do, then they just show up at your door. My dentist actually <laughs> brought me a, a typewriter and left it at the. He goes, "I saw this at garage sale. I thought you'd want it." Like, I don't have enough room in my house for these, but they're cool. So, I, but I have a couple with little, um, but and I type on them periodically. And your brain works a different way when you're 
I, I do a lot of my initial plotting and writing longhand, but writing longhand or typing, you you think differently than when you have the ability to cut and paste and backspace oh, and oh move God, stuff yeah. around. It's it's kind of a neat way to to train your brain to step back a bit. So I enjoy that sometimes. Mm, one of the things that happened with my uh, Smith Corona was that uh, uh, my number one key wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I used uh, lowercase L mm-hmm. and uh, for all, for those numbers, and it didn't really look that all that different. But I could never exclaim anything. That's really, <laughs> that really upset me that I couldn't make an exclamation point. Anyway. Yeah. No, I, I have an old manual like that that doesn't even have the explanation point on it. So, oh, yeah. Oh man, yeah, what, those are fun. Those, those were fun. those were days when we never could exclaim anything. We're, exactly. I, I have a character in the newest Arliss, not the one that the one that will come out a year from now. That is sort of my my uh, ghost in the book, and he's about to retire. And he talks about the good old days when it was, you know triplicate forms and side handled, you know, PR 24 batons and wheel, you know, six shooters. And just kind of before you were chained to the office with a cell phone, when it, it was, I mean, in the, even early on in the marshal service, this would have been in 91, 92, 93. We didn't um, have cell phones. We just had, well, I guess we got a bag phone later on like 95, but uh, most of us just had a calling card and a pager and, when you got called by the boss, you found a payphone somewhere and pulled over and typed in your code and felt pretty, pretty uh, much like a spy government agent just being able to to have all that cool gear. And then, yeah, it, no, uh, I changed. I don't disagree with you in that. Uh, and here we are taking a road down the uh, um, um, way back when. I always said that uh, a good investigator knew where there was always the Greek diners because the Greek diners would have um, the lumberjack special, clean toilets and pay phones. And, you know, yeah, if you knew where they were, you were never, and when your beeper went off, you knew where the nearest uh, Greek diner was. So <laughs> that's funny. It's cool. I can tell where you're from because you call it a beeper. And I was, we have a, a very famous, he's passed away now. The fantastic deputy um, Bobby uh, Fagan, um, he gets quoted in the in one of the fugitive movies where he the guy jumps out and Sam Jarr says he did a Peter Pan. That's a that's a Bobby Fagan ism when somebody jumps. But he would I remember one time he was talking about a very larger than life guy, chief deputy out of New York, and he went in the task force for a long time. And somebody was arguing with him about whether it was a beep or a pager, and he says, well, "Let me ask you this: Does it say beep 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 or page page page?" So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I needed that laugh. Thank you so yeah, much, Mark. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> oh, I love that page, page, page. Uh, oh, God, that's good. But uh, you kind of like threw it in there that you were a marshal. So at some point in time, you went federal. Yeah, so I spent um, not quite seven years with the police department. Um, we... Uh, you know, back, back then, you know, before the internet, we, it seems like everybody sort of was doing their time. I mean, I enjoyed the job. I, I hearken back to my police days 
a lot and and draw from those those uh, patrol more than anything. But I served as a patrol officer and, and a detective, a mounted patrol officer, rode horses for about a year and a half. In fact, um, so. But I, but I always, there were several of us that were always looking to go federal. So we'd park, you know, work mids and park, you know, conference style with our doors right together and pass um, pamphlets back and forth. Oh, look at what the ATF's hiring. Look at look at what they do. Other oh, marshals are. But we were fortunate that we had some really awesome um, fugitive hunters over in Fort Worth with the marshal's office in Fort Worth, and they would come over and work with us and, you know, let us know, hey, we're looking for this guy. And I was always impressed with the way that they didn't care who got the bad guy. It was always, here's where he is. You guys look for him. We're coming over. If you get him before we get there, awesome. That's yeah. great. We don't care. And not all federal agencies, I don't want to say any names, but not all our federal agencies had that same reputation with us as locals. And so I, I was I was drawn to the marshals. And, and actually, when I was very young, by, by, in – like a freshman in high school, um, I was on the courthouse square there in that same hometown where I went to school. And um, this guy pulled up in his pickup and got out and big cowboy hat and start shirt and a gun belt, you know, showing for everybody and a silver star badge on his belt by the gun. And he took this canvas bag out of his pickup and stretched it over the parking meter. And it said official business, United States Marshal. And I thought, I don't know what that does, but I want one of those bags really bad, so I don't have to pay the dime for the parking meter. Mm. But, uh, so I, and then I ended up being friends with his son, and and as a small world category, that same deputy, uh, Larry Fowler, eventually became uh, did my background investigation when I hired on with the Marshal Service in 1991, and uh, actually did my um, became the sheriff of Parker County. And later on when he retired. So no anyway, kidding. I jumped over into the marshals in 91 and um, spent about 22 years there. Wow. That's cool. That's a great story. Um, and I, in my sixth book, uh, Marsha O'Shea series, which is, uh, she's an FBI agent in five of the sixth and she's on administrative leave in the sixth. Um, I always make a point of, of having a local cop usually a detective saying oh yeah and the fbi is going to come in and bigfoot this case <laughs> yeah i always have to use the word bigfoot because well you know that that's the terminology <laughs> and that's that's also the truth but uh, yeah. anyway i and i'm you know hey this one i write i write what i see what can i tell you well we're you know i'm very fortunate and, and i i do see that and i have seen that in my career in in alaska we're very fortunate that we, you know, obviously there's there's personalities that get in the way, and every every agency, including the marshal service, has a jerk or two, you know. But but by and large, Alaska is such a big state with such a small population of law enforcement that we have to get along, we have to work with each other, and so we. I have. I had experiences working with the bureau, working with ATF, working with um, all you know all the agencies here that were just fantastic, and and remain friends with with many of them. <sighs> it's so nice to talk about that. And uh, you had a long career uh, with uh, as a marshal. And was there anything that came after marshal that before uh, like diving into your writing full time? Well, it actually overlapped. So I I. I was writing 
Uh, gosh, I think it got published in late the late 90s and for the first time and um, wrote Westerns to begin with and, and uh, Ghost wrote some Westerns. And a lot of publishing houses will kind of try you out by having you write under a different name for an established um, person, you know, an established dead guy. <laughs> and okay. so I, uh, I wrote some Westerns and then wrote some under another pen, my own pen name, Mark Henry, which um, was actually an undercover name with the Marshalls back in the day. <laughs> but, um, but I, it was good then Hen- it's good again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was used to signing it. So I uh, wrote under Mark Henry for a while. And then uh, when I switched to, um, then switched to thrillers and dropped to Mark Henry. And I, so I, I was writing, but I never could write about the Marshall service. So I, I uh, wrote a series about a OSI agent, an air force officer, special investigations agent that kind of over the top, what in the seventies, it would have been classified as men's adventure, you know, with okay. motorcycles and gunplay and Matt Helm kind of stuff. Okay, um, but great fun to write, and I thought I was going to write one kind of for fun as a one-off, and then we've done eight plus two novellas now. So, and the name um, of that character, Jericho Quinn. Okay, and uh, so in your initial submission on on your first one, uh, what kind of feedback did you get back from the editors liking it, and did they want to tweak it at all or change it, or were you just a, a, a completely gobsmacked that somebody said, "Yeah, I liked it"? You mean when I first got when I first got picked up? Yeah. Or okay, yeah. So so I'd written these these westerns, and I I met the editor at the at a uh, conference at a Western Writers of America conference, and she, um, you know, being a investigator cop working UC some and all that. I dressed the part. I mean, I had a, I was, I mean, I was a horseshoer as a younger guy to make ends meet and, um, you know, rode horses for work and did some day work and for, as a part-time, not very good cowboy. And, um, so I knew the part and, and everybody expects a marshal to look like I looked anyway with a hat and a big mustache and wheel gun and all that. So I, when I went to the conference, I just dressed my part and she was kind of taken aback at this guy that wrote westerns that was also oh and i gave her a little lapel pin a little marshal service badge and so she <laughs> she said uh she you said, know yeah, all the send, tricks yeah exactly exactly you know tip my hat howdy ma'am that kind of thing <laughs> really nice lady um so she asked for three chapters and um again this was back you know even though we had email back then, the agents and editors didn't customarily, everybody was kind of getting used to what this crazy mechanism was. And so they still liked it coming to them in the mail. Double so space. Yeah, exactly. Double space and courier font and all that. Yep. There was a, don't staple it together. There was all kinds of rules. And, and still is if you're going to send something in that way. But in fact, my contract still calls for a a manuscript in a box with a three by five floppy disk on top of it. And I'm like, they're like, don't worry about that. We just haven't changed it yet. But, uh, <laughs> but it's all electronic now. But so I, uh, I went back, edited it like crazy. I mean, I had the book done, but still when an editor, a New York editor says, yes, send me three chapters. You just go a little bit nuts and um, re-edit and rewrite everything. So I had some friends that were established writers help me, polished the three chapters, sent it off. And then, 
sadly, um, well, I got a call. It, I was at work. I was working with, with the marshal's service, and I, uh, I got a call from my wife, and she was crying. And she said, well, I just got word, and my dad is, is dying. And uh, he's, he was 90. He, they lived in Canada. And she said, my dad's dying. And I just loved her dad. He's such a good guy. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's pack up and uh, get ready to go there. And she said, oh, and Anne called and they want to publish your books. And I was like, okay, yeah, now I'm, I'm terribly sad, but this is going to be the greatest day of my life now. So I was kind of torn between these emotions. And so we went on to Canada and then I found out that, uh, and then, you know, got to say goodbye to, to my father-in-law, again, just an incredible World War II, a British military officer, great dude. Said goodbye to him and then started talking to the editor. And that's when they put me in doing these uh, ghost-written things. Oh. And so actually what happened is... They, they put, you in this, put you to work. Well, well, what they did is they said, we want to publish your book, but we don't have a place for it in the next... Because books are in their scheduled. Cycle. Yeah, scheduled like way out. And so we don't have anything soon. Could you finish these books for us? And I said, yeah, sure. And so they FedExed me to Canada, a bunch of books for this particular series of this other author. And I read them over and then I called back the publishing, the publisher and said, can I speak to so-and-so? And they said, she doesn't work here. And I said, yeah, I was just talking to her. She wanted me to write these books. And they said, nope, she doesn't work here anymore. She's, she's moved on. And I was like, okay, well, I'm supposed to write these books. They said, we've never heard of you. Thanks. Goodbye. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. So I, so I was devastated. I was I was hired and orphaned within the span of about nine days. <laughs> and you know, I mean, again, this is this was like twenty years of rejection letters, and finally somebody had said, "Yes, we want to do a book." And so I was just in Canada, just kind of going crazy. And I checked my email, and there was an email from a lady named Robin Rue. Who, with a Writer's House Literary Agency, a fantastic. She's been so literary. Writer's House represents Ken Follett, Neil Gaiman, a bunch of big names, and uh, V.C. Andrews Estate. And she was very kind on the email. She just said, "So and so gave me your pages. I've been looking at them. I would like to represent you. You may Google me if you want to see who I am, and and uh, give me a send me an email. Tell me what you think." And Robin Rue has been my agent now for almost 20 years. Um, it's a great it's, story. Yeah, it was just a fantastic turn of events, being in the right place at the right time. Then I ended up doing the meeting my new um, editor. Uh, she got me set back up to do the, the ghost writing again. I met my new editor, Gary Goldstein, and he's been my editor with Kensington for almost the same length of time. And he's very... He reads my stuff. He gives me pointers, but he hasn't really um, long, super long way to answer your original question. He hasn't done a lot of mucking around with the the manuscript. He'll say, "You might want to look at this chapter. I don't think we really need this chapter." And I say, "You're right. You're absolutely right. I can use that somewhere else." So, but as far as like, I don't like the way you turn this phrase here. Or don't do that. It's it's. Uh, I don't get much of that. A little so, more of that with the Tom Clancy's, um, but in a good way. Just very good. It's just a different style of editing. Well, um, now you've mentioned Tom Clancy's. I we've got to. But before you get there, 
uh, we're going to hold that thought for a second, but I, you did answer my question in a long way because here you'd been, you know, out in the wilderness for years and like a good novel, you know, you're the protagonist in your own story. You get this great piece of news and it's, but at the same time you get this terrible piece of news <laughs> and then and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, um, um, dramatizing something that's serious. No, no, so, I did. Okay. I brought it up. I brought it right. up. But I don't mean to dramatize the, you know, the bad part, but you have the great news and you have the bad news. And then nine days later, uh, they don't even know who the hell you are. Yeah, so exactly. talk about um, getting kicked down again, another obstacle placed in your way, you know, from <laughs> um, um, Sisyphus's uh, <laughs> Exactly. Just rolling it back down. Yeah. it's right. And you, you add that to the fact that Although I'm a cop and can stand a lot of stress, I'm also a neurotic writer. So okay. it's a, it's a, yeah, it was pretty, uh, yeah, pretty mind numbing there for a while. And then that newfangled thing comes across. You sure it wasn't AOL? <laughs> yeah, well, I re- I do remember that that the email that I had, you couldn't access it remotely without going through a third portal. So you had to log into a website put in your local email address and that would take you to this portal. That's the only way I could do it. So I, I actually had to look up on, I can't remember the, it wasn't Google. It was ask Jeeves or some older, uh, search engine, um, how to access email remotely. So it was a detective job just to try to check my own email. But then you, but then you get in touch with your agent and now you've had an editor that doesn't uh, – that's on the same wavelength with you. you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing about that is is that um, – I the reason I asked that question is because you, you didn't know truly what your writing chops were. I mean, you might have had some people telling you some nice stuff and, like, you know, your family saying, oh, it's great, or, or the opposite, your family saying, oh, I don't read that, you know, and uh, – but then you get uh, then you get into that world where finally somebody is assessing your writing after all those right. years, and you know the, all those years weren't a waste, obviously, because you honed your craft, you got better and better as time went by, as you wrote more and more stories. So maybe there might be rejection slips on top of them. They were getting better, I would think. No, it, it's yeah. It, I mentioned being a neurotic writer a little bit. And I think we all have to be self-critical in order to get better. And the the thing about writing is you have to professionally. The thing about writing professionally is you have to give up that ego and be edited. I, I remember a story about um, James Michener when he was, you know, at the height of his career. He wrote Alaska, and he tells a story about how he. You know, Alaska is a humongous book, one that I read years ago, but uh, before I even moved here. But he tells a story about writing this book and turning it in. And his editor, who's a 27 year old MFA from somewhere back east, and um, telling him, you know, this whole section just doesn't belong in this book. And he's like, I'm James Friggin Michener. What are you, little girl, telling me? You know, and this is him telling this. How do you? what are you telling me what goes in the book? And he read it over and, 
<laughs> he said, <laughs> by golly, she was right. This did not go in the book. But being James Michener, his book was so long that when he excised that part, they just turned it into a second book and called it Journey. Ah. And that became, that became another Michener book. Well. So, uh, but he listened to his editor. And, and I'm very fortunate that I have Gary and then also Tom Colgan from PR from Penguin Random House, both, you know, I hear horror stories sometimes of author, editor, agent arguments and feuds. And man, I've just been so fortunate with the people I've worked with. You know, and, and uh, honestly, the uh, I, I kind of uh, interview, not kind of, I interview uh, writers that are, some are traditionally published, some are uh, self-published, some are hybrids. You know, and not, you know, it's different times in their Mm -hmm. careers. They might be in a different place. But rarely have I heard about um, uh, that kind of fighting or bitterness or or backbiting or anything like that. I rarely hear that. So from my standpoint, what I normally hear is what you're saying is that there's a good relationship between the editor and the writer and that the editor polishes the work that the writer brings in and, um, it's a nice relationship, whether it's, um, uh, whether the editor is the employee of the publisher or the editor is the employee of the writer, you know, right. it, it doesn't right. matter. There's usually a good relationship there. And, uh, so I, I don't really hear that much about it. Uh, I've heard a lot of bad, not bad stories, uh, tragic stories, like you say, uh, of, uh, one day you have an agent and the next day you're reading the obituary. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so I've heard those stories too, but you know, not not too often of uh, uh, you know a real knockdown, drag out, parting of the ways. You know, but yeah, usually it's from my experience, really not my personal experience, but people that I've seen that where that's happened, it is rare. But when it happens, it's very visible and very visceral, and you all, it's sort of you know, goes across, it ripples across the industry because it's such a, in the traditional world anyway, it's such a small industry that you, if somebody's having a fight with their editor and they badmouth that editor to someone else, that editor's going to hear about it. They're, it just, it's too, you know, they're all going to the same luncheons and know the same, you know, it's just, so it, so it becomes a, a big dust up and, um, that's why I think, gosh, it may it may not happen very often, but I'm sure glad to have the one. And and even more than that, though, not just that they're good editors, but my two editors and my agent and the people they work with have just been beyond that. You know, friendly, not not just professional, but easy to work with. It's been it's been very good. No, I I, I agree with you. When you have that kind of a relationship with your editor, um, I think you're more on the same wavelength. And and that wavelength doesn't mean that it's a love fest. It means that no, no. your editor will be, be able to tell you straight, hey, that, that ain't working and here's why. You know, or hey, that works nice. I like it. And you know, and you know it's genuine. It's not um just getting a pat on the back. No, so we've left right. uh we've left the listeners listening long enough. So you mentioned Tom Clancy, who by the way was one of my favorites back in the day. Mine too. Mine yeah. too. Um if I were ever to appoint a person to be the Secretary of Defense, it would be Tom <laughs> Clancy or his reincarnation. Just just me saying, you know. And the fact that uh, 
um, the American intelligence community still undervalues human intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, in, instead of the, you know, in, in favor of the rockets and the satellites and eavesdropping and all that <laughs> other crap. Now that I've said that, <laughs> um, tell me, how did you get into the uh, Tom Clancy universe? Well, it's another one of those roundabout ways. I was writing the Jericho Quinn novels, and I'd, I'd originally wanted to write this crime novel, the Arliss Cutter stories, and I uh, submitted some that were kind of like that, and they wouldn't, that nobody was interested in them. And so I started the Jerichos, and um, Wrote a bunch of those, and I'd gone to a BoucherCon writing conference in Long Beach, California. It was my first one of those to go to, and just meeting new people. And one of the new people that I met was uh, Mark Graney, who sure. was, he writes The Gray Man, and then he was writing the Jack Ryan series at the time. In fact, he wrote two while Tom Clancy was still alive, You know, co-wrote with him, and then kind of weaned towards doing more of them himself, and then... When Clancy passed away, uh, Granny really was the the first guy, him Grant Blackwood, um, that wrote the the series after that. And so, um, and then there were the spinoffs. You know, yeah, well, yeah, they had the, the Rainbow Six. Ra- well, Rainbow Six was one of his, but then the the um, oh, I'm having a mind fade. What the Splinter Cell mm-hmm. and, and uh, I can't remember the other one. The I can't remember the titles, but there's several, a couple of series, spinoff series. But these are the Jack Ryan novels, the ones that specifically have Jack Ryan in them. And and then um, the, Tom Clancy wrote Rainbow Six and um, Without Remorse. They were not, you know, Jack Ryan's mentioned, but they're really about John Clark. So who's one of my favorite characters, I think, like most people that are Jack Ryan. Are and I would Clancy never play. Aficionados. And I would never play. I was in, uh, never mind. Which one? <laughs> uh, the narco one, uh, was it clear and present, clear and danger? present danger? Yeah. I yeah, would yeah. not have, I would not have portrayed that actor for John Clark for the life. William Defoe. Yes. William yeah. Defoe. I would yeah. not have that, that would just not, <laughs> you know, Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, we all have our, you know, we all have our, who we cast in our heads and, um, that's true. So I, so I, you know, I'd watched all the movies. I read um, Hunt for Red October when I was in the police academy in 1984. Mm. It came out. So yeah. so I was right in the Jerichos. I'd gone to the BoucherCon, and Mark and I just kind of got to know each other a little bit there. And then in the subsequent BoucherCon, you know, as the years went on, um, we got to know each other better. And he said, we were out to dinner one time, or and he said, what are you working on now? Would you like me to give you a cover blurb? And I thought, gosh, I, I hate to ask other authors for cover blurbs. It's just go. It just it bugs me. And um, but he asked I know you. How busy. He, I know, and he he. It just it was incredible. And so I said, absolutely, a Mark Graney cover blurb. This would be because yeah. I I love his uh, Gray Man series. So he took my manuscript, and unbeknownst to me at the time, he was deciding to step away from the Clancy's, and so he took my manuscript to Tom Colgan, his editor for the gray man and the, the Jack Ryan's and said, why don't you look at this guy? And I guess Tom couldn't find anybody else. So he contacted my agent and I was actually in Florida, had no idea this was going on. 
my wife and I were down there doing some research on the Arliss Cutter series. And um, we were actually taking a break on the beach. And my agent called me and said, Robin called me and said, Mark Graney has recommended you for this series. How would you like to go forward? And I, I said, well, you know, I was terrified. I was so scared. And I said, well, I have this other contract and I don't have the time. And oh my gosh, I got to do that. And I started to panic. And she very directly, but kindly in her good agent way said, Mark, don't screw around. This is Clancy. We're doing it. And I said, okay, all right, <laughs> whatever you say. So, so uh, that, that was five books ago and I'm finishing the sixth one in a couple of months. Damn. That's nice stuff. Yeah. Very fortunate. Yeah. But you know, Hey, he took notice of your writing. He got to meet you. He got to meet you at a couple different sittings. He saw that you were, uh, going to be around for a while. You got some longevity, maybe had this in the back of his head that, you know, that things needed to move in the direction they went. Well, it was just very nice of him. Mark's a, Mark's a good, good writer and a, a, just a good dude. So he's been very helpful to me. I'm glad to see his success. He's got a Netflix movie coming out or yeah, movie coming out, uh, the gray man anytime. Like really a couple is, of months, a series you know? or a movie. It's a movie. Oh, yeah. A it's movie. a movie. It's got, uh, Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans in it. Really? Yeah. Well, I get Netflix. There you go. There I there go. go. I, it's, it's, uh, I think the Russo brother, I may be mistaken, but I think the Russo brothers, uh, directed it so yeah i think i'm really looking forward to that he it's well deserved he's just a good a good guy does a lot for other writers i've heard that yeah and i think i might have seen him on a couple panels yep we've always, been on some panels together he's very knowledgeable too he's he spends a lot of time doing research and traveling and he's he and another author who's a good friend of mine named uh rip rawlings hunter rip ripley rawlings he's a retired Lieutenant Colonel Marine Corps. They they wrote a book together called Red Metal that's uh really Clancy esque. It's yeah. uh, it's a great book. It's one of my one of my favorite books. Red Metal. When I listen to this again uh during production, I'll make sure to write that down so that I can uh look it up. Because you know, I, I'm just too much into into uh my flawed fictional detectives and we're gonna talk about Arliss. We're going to get there, I <laughs> no promise. But no um, maybe I need uh, I need some Clancy esque reading again because <laughs> I tell you what, um, you know, uh, I couldn't put Red October down. Oh, uh, I know, I know what you mean. And then, and the next one was uh, Cardinal of the Kremlin. Uh, Might have been, but um, it was damn good. <laughs> and then uh, the story about without remorse. And then there was a sum of all fears. I mean, I just went boom, 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 boom. Everything that he wrote yep. came out. I picked it up and, you know, uh, I liked his, uh, like I, I already prefaced it by, I said, I liked his ideology and uh, mm-hmm. it was about, uh, you know, he, he, he could talk the techno babble techno thrillers real well but it was it always came down to the human it always came down to the person it always came down mm-hmm. to the good versus evil and um, yep did something nice with that so definitely so okay uh flawed fictional detective ta- tell me about arliss how he, how he came to be and and tell me about the series yeah so arliss cutter is a a Supervisory Deputy U.S. Marshal, so works for the Marshal Service in Alaska. He's 
he's fairly new to Alaska. He grew up in Florida, um, kind of a beach bum, tall, big, like 6'3", 240, shaggy blonde hair, just a very quiet, um, rather be in the water than anywhere else. But he's he's kind of broken because when he was, he, he and his, his mother ran off, his dad died. Um, so he, he and his brother were raised by their grandpa, uh, a man that uh, he was a Florida Marine Patrol officer that everybody called Grumpy because uh, he didn't smile either. And, and Arliss could never say grandpa when he was a little boy. So kind of a rough childhood, but happy because they, this relationship with his, his grandfather, who was a policeman who he idolized that worked back in the, you know, people always say, are you, are you Arliss? Cause you're in the marshals. And I said, no, I was a grumpy guy. I carried a, carried a <laughs> six shooter. And um, in fact, anybody that follows me on social media sees me with my little grandsons and they know that that's where the inspiration comes for, for, mm-hmm. he, for Arliss. So Arliss was in love when he and he and his uh, brother met this girl named Mim in Florida when he was, Arliss was 16 and he fell for her right away, but she married his older brother and then they moved off and did their thing. And Arliss joined the military. He's been married four times. He's finally in the marshal service, got some stability. Um, his brother is killed and is, there's some problems with the payout of the insurance. And so his sister-in-law is struggling this sister-in-law that he still carries a torch for and so he transfers to Alaska to be with her, help her with her kids, help her find out what's going on with the brother, and uh, in his mind, rekindle the relationship that was never really there. And and so there's a lot of tension. He lives with them. He lives in a spare bedroom. And so we get to see over the course of the books, their relationship develop uh, and then backslide and then develop some more. And while he's solving murders and doing marshally stuff marshally stuff yeah i like that that's cool yeah I, I got on an elevator one time when i was quite young in the service and and uh had a had a i was with my partner and my partner had one of those um wool matt Dillon, you know shearling jackets on and the judge got on with us and he looked over at my partner and said well you look marshally today so <laughs> Marshally. Yep. I like that. That's cool. So that's that, that was really nice that you gave me a, a real uh, deep dive into Arliss and uh, what his world's about. And it's not all about the hunt. It's not all about chasing every freaking clue. I use the word freaking uh, clue. <laughs> and uh, it's about also the dynamic of uh, being catapulted into – uh, almost like a surrogate role exactly. in, in her household. Nope, and, she, exactly. and she doesn't know, um, well, I don't know what she Well, she's, she's navigating, she's navigating losing a husband and trying to raise these kids. And so, and, you know, I want these to be like, what, Michael Conley does a, a tremendous job at this of getting the, the backstory of the, of Bosch and, you know, his family and all that and all the things he's dealing with. And I, and that's what I want to portray in these books is not just because I, I was fortunate enough to spend a career, not only seeing some very inspirational bad guys to write about so I can write about quote unquote villains, but layered villains that are do evil things, but they're not necessarily evil human beings, you know, so that we can, so that there's some, 
some dynamic there that's not just, you know, not everybody's the, you know, the Unabomber. Well, I don't even say that. Now everybody's just totally evil, right? But at the same time, I was able to work with people that were just fantastic leaders, exemplar, exemplary mentors, and and so I want and and some bad ones, some people yeah, oh, that yeah. I you know that that uh, that I would never want to supervise me or my kids or people that I cared about. And so part of the the fun for me of writing these books is Ar- Arliss has a, a subordinate slash partner that that it's his. She works for the the task force. He runs the Alaska Fugitive Task Force, which I served on for a while. And right before it was a supervisor, it was just a deputy in charge, just no rank, just got all of the paperwork. But uh, so I was <laughs> yep. a deputy in charge of the ta- multi agency task force. So. And that's still up and running. Now it has a supervisor. So I put Arliss in that gig, and he's got this young protege that's uh, from the Cook Islands, this Maori, you know, background um, that's uh, very vivacious and young and new in the martial service and just, and he's teaching her while I teach the reader about man tracking and hunting fugitives and and being a good leader and and sort of passing on some of the things he learned from his grandfather and all sort of you know I hope I don't I try not to shoehorn it in it should happen naturally so right. anything that happens about tracking it's it's not a you know chapter 1 how to track someone that's trying to evade it's here's what's going on in the story and these guys are running and oh let me show you how I found him in this stream you know things like that uh so that she becomes the 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 foil or the the person that he gets to teach mm-hmm. um or bounces he doesn't talk much so she can be the narrator of the oh, whole I like that gig so so Cook islands that's um um is that a territorial prote- uh, protective or is no it- so the cook islands are they're a country they used to be a protectorate of uh or a Commonwealth country, a protector of uh, New Zealand. So they're down between Fiji and Tahiti and um, beautiful little string of islands. Um, the main, the biggest island, Rarotonga, is, um, gosh, it takes about an hour, not even an hour to drive around the ring road. But my wife and I go there every uh, winter, spend a couple of, a couple of months there. We have friends there that we rent from and, uh, so it's a beautiful little paradise. Um, okay, in the middle of the the middle of the Pacific. Um, wow! And so, I mean, like smack in the middle of the Pacific. So, in fact, if you think about Hawaii and where Hawaii is above the equator, um, the Cook Islands are kind of equidistant south. Okay. So it's uh, so I just fell in love with the people and the um, the culture, and uh, you know they speak with this really really pleasant to the ear um new zealand you know kiwi accent and Mm -hmm. so when i go there and spend two or three months i come back thinking my name is mock and and uh, and and when they read my books they pronounce it kutta instead of cutter and so it's just kind of a nice little she's got a unique she's american in the book but she's got this cook islander father and so she's got a bit of the culture and so it's just a fun well, Fun way to idea. take some of the the culture, and again, you want to have your you want to have your story and your books or movies or whatever 
reflect diversity and real life and all that, but it shouldn't be shoehorned in. And so this allows me to, I mean, my, my chief deputy before I became chief was uh, a female and one of the finest bosses I've ever had. I don't have to shoehorn that into the books. I can make it. In, in fact, Arliss's chief is sort of loosely based on her and several other women that I knew in the marshal service. And so it's, it allows me to really tell a, a paint a true story without shoehorning in a, a quote unquote diversity, just make it real. You yeah, know? no. And, and what, and of course I'm just looking at this kind of, uh, Arliss is a surfer dude from Florida Mm-hmm. And his uh, sidekick, for lack of a better word, comes yeah. from uh, an idyllic uh, mm-hmm. island setting. And they both are in Alaska. The last yeah. zip code that I would expect, <laughs> or set of zip codes that I would expect, you know? Yeah, that's, that's what makes it kind of fun. And then it also it teaches the reader that we actually have a, a vibrant Polynesian community in Anchorage. And so it's uh it's kind of and you don't expect it. We have no. quite a few Samoans and Tongans, and not very many, not any Cook Islanders, as far as I know, but a lot of Tongan and Samoan people, and and so it's kind of cool to to address that um, in the, the story the, as well. The tides carried them there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what brought maybe the commercial fishing or what brought them here as a culture, but it's pretty cool. And you have a and you have the latest Arliss book coming out soon. Yeah, so the Cold Snap, which is number four in the series, comes out April twenty sixth, so next Tuesday from here, from where we speak today. That's so cool. And then it'll be out there for us, uh, for my uh, listeners to pick up. And there might be. And what's your next book after that? You know. So the next book, yeah, the the next book that comes out after that will be the next. Jack Ryan, um, that is untitled. I'm still working on it. It's, okay. uh, it doesn't have a title yet. It's already up on Amazon. That's also terrifying when you see, oh my gosh, this book's number 1500 on Amazon and I haven't finished writing it yet. <laughs> um, but it, but, uh, that one will come out in November and oh, then they, nice. yeah, I, I turn them in and I'll turn it in and, uh, June, end of June, and then okay. it comes out in November, and then the following year, I, I've already finished the next Arliss called uh, Breakneck. Um, that comes out the following April, so a year from now. And then I got one more Arliss to write, another Jericho Quinn to write, and then we'll see about another Clancy. Where and then we're you know back to the you're all you're always employed until your contracts run out so we'll yep. i think they're i think they're selling well enough that we'll continue so or you can decide to uh uh become uh, a non uh nom de plume and uh self-publish if you want to do something else too so that's always yeah a possibility. You know, that's true that's true and i my uh hat goes off to the people that do the indie stuff and self-publish it's uh i'm going to speak at the um I'm going to talk on craft at the, uh, what's the name of the 50, 20, 20 books to 50 K in Vegas coming up. Uh, I'm going to be down there for that. I'm interested in, I, I started when that was not as common and part of what really, apart from just making a living at it, part of what made me interested 
and pine away for traditional publishing is I was reading all the stories about just the life, just the, the, the talking with your agent, going to meetings in New York, being, you know, sitting in a, a room with the president of Putnam and, and uh, <laughs> staying at the um, Algonquin Hotel. My <laughs> wife and I went and stayed at the Algonquin where Dorothy Parker and James Thurber and those used to banter back and forth. And I just like that culture. Yeah. And so I, I really en- enjoy that part of the writing. That's why I like to go into conferences because it makes you feel all writerly, like marshally. Right. Marshally and writerly. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Now, uh, I, I enjoy uh, – I enjoy the uh, conferences as well. Uh, that's a damn good conference that you're going to. Um, it is probably the premier conference for um, self-pub uh, or indie, indie authors. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, – I don't think that, uh, you know, as, a, as the podcaster, I talk to – independent authors. I talk to hybrids. I talk to uh, traditional published. And mm-hmm. to me, uh, I'm just happy to hear about the stories. I'm, I'm happy to hear the writer's journey, getting to where yeah. they got to. It's not, it's not all the same. It's not all different. Um, it's just all unique to every individual. And um, whatever a person is, is, you know, however they choose to uh, identify, well, it could be that way this week. But like I said, you might be calling <laughs> exactly. me up and say, hey, John, that uh, self-pub thing, how's that going for you? No, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. I think right now I'm at the point where I I don't want to worry about the cover, and I don't want to worry you guys. It's just a, a incredibly artistic mm. group that does that. Does that. And I, I maybe I'm too old and lazy at this point. No, no, no. And a self-pubber doesn't, shouldn't do their own cover. Um, but I they, mean, even even just talking, you're setting it all up. Oh, uh, okay. Well, you know, I, it's, I I agree. The really good ones have somebody professional do it. It's just the it's the business side of things. I got gotcha. you. The the thing that allows that even though at some some points I ta- chat you know chat with people who are doing incredibly well financially and make much more per book than I do. I don't. Somebody else makes that because they get paid to do the business side of things. And I I want to just focus right now on the writing. And who knows what tomorrow will bring. But right now, it's nice to just duck my head. My wife used to, when I was first starting to get paid a little bit, you know, a thousand bucks here, a thousand bucks there for a short story or whatever. She pretty much, because I was working full time, absolved me from most honeydews and which is why our gutters are falling down right now. I need to fix that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, she pretty much absolved me from honeydews. And when I would come in the door from working with the marshals, she would swap me on the butt with a rolled up newspaper or whatever and say, go write us a new couch or go write us a fridge. And nice. um, it's just, I that's would rather, great. That's you know, great. I'd rather do that. Than, that's fantastic. You have the support of your spouse and, oh, yeah. um, and, you know, she kept you alive with a second, with a not a second chance vest, but with another vest. And yeah, American kept, body armor. I remember right. the armadillo on the on the tag. And uh, that's that's a great story, Mark. Is there? And this is the investigator in me asking that question. Is uh, is there anything I failed to ask you? <laughs> no, we we actually we plowed a pretty deep row here. This is a 
this was a, a fun conversation. Yeah, it is. It was. And uh, it was a blast talking to you. I really did. I really enjoyed it. Um, loved everything you said about how you, you know, how you intertwined your writing uh, with your work career and how, you know, it was not easy sledding during those early years. And mm -hmm. and then uh, just when you thought it was going to be great, it you got a flip-flop and then <laughs> things turned out okay. And then... Yeah, it turned yeah, out great. Yeah, it turned out great. So... No, I appreciate it. Now, and uh, how can people get in touch with you, sir? Well, I'm I'm on uh, I'm at markcameronbooks.com, easy to contact, and uh, then I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. It's pretty easy to find me. At just Mark Cameron, Mark with a C. Mark with a C. Yes. All right. So uh, I thank you very much. I certainly appreciate you coming on, and it was a blast. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it, John. Ah, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope I've earned your interest and your time. Our guest next week is Paula Mounier. She is a literary agent and a USA Today bestselling author of the Mercy Car Mysteries. Borrowing of Bones is the first in the series, was nominated for the Mary Higgins Clark Award and named the Dogwise Book of the Year. Blind Search was inspired by a real-life rescue of a little boy with autism who got lost in the woods. The Hiding Place debuted in March 2021. Her latest Mercy Car Mystery, The Wedding Plot, released in July 2022 through Minotaur Books. Paula credits the hero dogs of Mission Canine Rescue, her own rescue dogs in the deep love of New England, as her series' major influence. Paula has also written three popular books on writing, Plot Perfect, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings, and Writing with Quiet Hands, as well as Fixing Freddy and Happier Every Day. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.